You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done By Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by law, 6pm Tuesdays. Good evening and welcome to Done by Law on 3CR 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. It's 6.03pm and you're here with Beth and Ingrid, broadcasting live from the 3CR studio. Now we'd like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of the lands on which we're broadcasting and recording, and where we are, that's the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. We'd like to pay our respects to their elders past and present. Now tonight we're looking at Indigenous Legal Judgments. It's a collection of key legal decisions affecting Indigenous Australians which have been reimagined and retold so as to be inclusive of Indigenous people's stories, historical experience, perspectives and worldviews. The collection was edited by Professor Heather Douglas and Associate Professor Nicole Watson and was published last year. Now, within the collection, Indigenous and non-Indigenous scholars have collaborated to rewrite 16 key legal judgments. Spanning from 1889 to 2017, the judgments reflect the trajectory of Indigenous peoples' engagements with Australian law. The collection includes decisions that have laid the foundation for the wrongful application of terra nullius and the disavowal of native title. Now, contributors have also challenged narrow judicial interpretations of native title, which have denied recognition to Indigenous people who suffered the prolonged impacts of dispossession. Various authors have shown how judicial officers can use their power to challenge systemic racism and tell the stories of Indigenous people who have been dehumanised by the criminal justice system. To speak on this topic tonight, we are very fortunate to be joined by one of the collection's editors, Associate Professor Nicole Watson. Nicole Watson is an Indigenous legal scholar who belongs to the Mananjali and Birugaba peoples of Queensland. She is currently employed as the Director of the Academic Unit in the Nuragili Centre for Indigenous Programs at the University of New South Wales. Um, Nicole, Welcome. We might have to see if we can dial Nicole back in and in the meantime, I will be introducing our second guest, who's Mary Spears-Williams. Mary is from the Australian National University where she is the sub-dean of Indigenous Studies for the College of the Arts and Social Sciences Executive, as well as being a lecturer in law. Her research primarily concerns the impact of state laws on First Peoples, centering the knowledges, law and insights of the First Peoples of Australia. And now Mary brings her to her research an insider-outsider perspective, including that born of her experiences as a legal practitioner and her identity and status as a woman descended from colonised settlers um, and first peoples of the sandstone country that stretches north from the Diarubbin, also known as the Hawkesbury River. Now while we get our fantastic guests back online, we're going to go to a song um, and we'll be back with you very shortly. (laughs) 
So it's on us to do what we gotta do to survive. I hope I see more changes, and I believe we can overcome if we all come together as one. Make it better for our sons and our daughters being brought up in this harsh world. Yeah, it's hard, but we can't turn backwards. Put your faith in the practice, escape from the cage you've been trapped in, and free yourself. Impossible alone, so I need your help for the youth to improve. We gotta teach you both. Cause racism isn't born, it's taught. Talk the talk, then you walk the walk. The ability for change is within you. Let's put aside our pride and try to face all these issues People operate the easy way Cause it's easier to hate than to say that you made a mistake But be real and together we can heal and rebuild But if we don't, then that's the way it is
And that was, of course, Spongelong rapper JK47's cover of Tupac's Changes. always like to start our shows with a good degree of technical difficulty, so thank you for bearing with us during that brief interlude. Um, we'll get stuck straight into it. Um, I wanted to ask you, Nicole, as one of the editors and the initiators of the concept of Indigenous legal judgments, what was your motivation in assembling the collection and, and who is the audience that you most hope to reach? Sure. So the project was inspired by the Australian Feminist Judgments Project and I was uh, very lucky to be one of the contributors to that project. And uh, as part of, of uh, my contribution, I rewrote uh, or reimagined and rewrote a High Court decision called Duckia um, that uh, concerned the um, conviction of uh, a young man called Duckia uh, of the murder of a police officer in the Northern Territory in the 1930s. And um, that judgment always stayed with me because of the horrible way that judges, the judges of the High Court referred to the Indigenous people in the decision. Um, Duckia was a, a highly esteemed leader of his people and he was referred to as a boy in the judgments. Um, his wives, who were there on that terrible day when a police officer uh, was killed, were, um, they were not even given names in the judgments and they were referred to as lubras, which was a very offensive uh, word. So I was, um, as part of my contribution to the Australian Feminist Judgments Project, I was able to reimagine that judgment and I guess um, atone for the way that the Indigenous people in, in that story were the judgment. And oh my goodness, I'm sorry, that's my dog. Um, so, and it was a very empowering experience being able to rewrite that decision. So uh, from that, I, I developed the idea of um, editing an entire collection of judgments of Australian courts uh, in which Indigenous people were either parties um, or, or witnesses. And are they all in relation to criminal matters or are there other legal issues that are explored in the various judgments um, that are it's contained in the collection? It's actually a diversity of areas of law. Uh, there's a family law case, there's uh, constitutional law cases, a, a torts decision. Um, and, and we actually asked contributors um, what judgment they would want to rewrite. Now, I imagine that for most of us, um, there was at least you know, a case in law school or a case that we've studied in practice um, that has deeply disturbed us. And this was a, a rare opportunity, I guess, to, to speak back to that decision, um, but to also show how the decision could have been written uh, in a better way. And, Nicole, how do those judgments, as reimagined, foreground and reframe the Indigenous experience of the justice system? So they, they do that in a number of ways. Um, for many of us, we actually chose to centre the stories of the Indigenous people in that case. Um, you know, as, as many of us would know from our experiences in law school, um, the, the parties are, I think, are, are quite dehumanised in judgments. You know, their, their lives and their experiences are reduced to relevant facts. Mm. Uh, so for many of us, we, we wanted to centre the stories. Um, but there, there are a diversity of approaches in the book, um, 
I think one of one of my favourite judgments is Marcel Burns and um, Simon mm. Young's reimagined uh, re- sorry reimagined approach to the Yorta Yorta case, uh, in which they um, reform the test of continuity of connection so that it focuses on the the cultural resilience and strength of the Yorta Yorta people, um, rather than it, yeah, the the test of continuity of connection that we have now, which really punishes uh, Native title mm. claimants for being the victims of, of history mm. uh, and really, um, yeah, it, it's just a really sad indictment, I think, on the way that, the, that members of the judiciary have interpreted the provisions of the Native Title Act and, and betrayed, I think, the, the great opportunity that um, Mr Eddie Marbo and his fellow plaintiffs gave uh, to all of us in 1992. Mm. And Mary, you've contributed one of these judgments to the collection. What was your motivation to contribute a piece to Indigenous legal judgments? Uh, well, initially, I, I mean, I was really grateful for that freedom of choice that we were given. Often you're asked to write something specifically, but this was like, what's the case, as Nicole said, that really bothered you? And um, at the time that I was asked, uh, a couple of years earlier, a judgment had come down in the High Court which really, really troubled me because we had all hoped that it would resolve a lot of issues um, that we'd been wrestling with as Indigenous people and also people who are advocates for Indigenous people in the court system. And it simply didn't. And while it did, there was some very superficial racism issues that arose in that case in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeal. It didn't really deal with... the some fundamental problems that we needed to deal with it, like at a really basic theoretical level. Um, but it also really, it just didn't deal with something which is fundamentally important, and that is um, the way that structural discrimination affects um, people who are caught up within the criminalisation processes of the state. And so it was something that I'd been wrestling with since first practice, really, in 1997, um, until and all the way through as an academic. And so I was bothered by both um, this idea of Aboriginal sentencing principles, which is this idea that had developed in the profession, um, which, was, which was really problematic, but also um, a simplistic response to that, which had just simply been to suggest that all you need to do is to provide more information about defendants when I didn't really think that was going to solve anything because they're already misconstruing... Judges and lawyers are already misconstruing so much that was being presented to them. with such good quality about Aboriginal people. Um, and so it was really a chance for me to take on this really difficult challenge because it meant, have, um, you know, really exposing myself in a prominent sort of volume, I guess, to people I'd worked with, but also, um, you know, a lot of people that I had respect with, but to have really, to really challenge us and our responsibility as judges and lawyers for what it is that we're doing and how we're actually causing harm and we're contributing to colonialism through what's called the criminal justice system, which increasingly I'm starting to call the state criminalisation process. But, mm. Yeah. And I think for me as well, the other, it was, it was just because, this is obviously an extraordinary undertaking. It's unprecedented. And while, you know, Nicole is, you know, rightfully, and this is classic Nicole, she's so respectful, I'm acknowledging the inspiration from Rosemary Hunter and others who had worked on the Feminist Judgments Project. The fact that she was doing this, this is completely unprecedented, and the way that she went about doing it was just 
it was so respectfully done and I just had such respect and trust for her and also Heather Douglas as editors um, that I was prepared to engage in it. And, of course, it just ended up being really extraordinary and more than I could imagine actually participating in the process of writing and collaborating with the other writers as well. Yeah, and Mary, you... You refer in your judgment in particular um, to a, a deficit discourse as it relates mm-hmm. to First Peoples. I mean, what, mm-hmm. what is a deficit discourse and how is it perpetuated through the original Bugme judgment that you had reimagined? Well, the, um, well, let's see. I guess the thing is that when my starting point for deficit discourse is, is really about thinking about what you do in practice as a lawyer and there is... Has, there is this practice now, and it's, it hasn't changed. It's, I mean, I've, I still sit in courts, main, primarily in the Northern Territory, but also occasionally in the ACT, where I'm based, um, in Ngunnawal and Ngambri country. And, um, and I still see submissions, pleas in mitigation, which are basically framed around um, setting up this sort of account where our clients are shamed and the worst aspects of their lives are, are brought before the court, the dysfunctional family, um, um, problems with alcohol, mental health issues, etc. But all of it seems to be decontextualised and the gaze is fixed firmly on the individual, the defendant. And they, while we're in... There's this, this plea and mitigation seeks to sort of um, get the mercy of the court, but in fact... You know, in more recent times, and in fact, really since the um, late 90s um, in Australia, that that information about what which should result in a much more merciful response to an individual who's had a really tragic, disadvantaged background tends to result in them being constructed as being a highly risky um, offender, a person who's so damaged that we need to protect society. And the society, there's this general idea that punishment will solve crime, which, as we know, it just seems to be making it worse, if anything. Um, So, yeah, deficit discourse was actually something that needed to be addressed um, in terms of matters that I was concerned with. But um, but I guess the other thing is around structural racism and, you know, how to really... We can't really understand deficit discourse unless we understand how it is that we've become so... That's become so normalised in our everyday talk about First Peoples, whether it's on the radio, you know, whether it's um, in our scholarship, whether it's in, you know, government policies, whether it's in a sentencing court. There's this tendency to construct us, First Peoples, as if we're somehow disadvantaged, as if that's somehow integral to our identity, which is, of course, complete nonsense. What makes us disadvantaged is not us and our status, our authority as First Peoples, but how we have been treated and our ancestors have been treated now for generations. And that is something... There's, so there's an aspect of criminalisation that the individual doesn't have to take responsibility for, but the state and its institutions also have to take their fair share of responsibility for. So I suppose well-meaning defence lawyers who are putting forward a plea and mitigation around someone's personal circumstances by omitting that structural violence perpetuated by the state are really contributing to that deficit discourse. Is that right? Well, yes, and so and that's the big challenge, right, because um, we really have to take responsibility for that, but the system encourages us to be irresponsible in the sense that there's a lot of pressure on us 
not to actually criticise um, the courts and to actually um, treat the law with tremendous respect and to be obedient to the law and so on. And we're also worried that if we get a judge offside, that they're going to take it out on our client because, you know, we stand as proxy for what our client says. So um, really this, what's crucial is to, under, to, to engaging with all this is really engaging with the idea of standpoint and really exploring our, you know, the way that we participate in this system and taking a good hard look at ourselves as individuals but also because the system is a, a, a wholly human system, but it's made up of individual actors who have their little part to play. And while we don't have control over the entire system, each one of us contributes to that and facilitates this ongoing discrimination. Mary, that's a really interesting point. And I suppose it leads to a question that I wanted to ask well, of both of you, but also maybe first Nicole, there are certain pieces in your collection um, that doubt whether the legal system in Australia, which has been integral to colonialism, can actually deliver meaningful justice to Indigenous people. Is that something that you agree with? That's, um, that's an interesting question. I've actually thought about that um, over the weekend and I find it really hard to answer and... Uh, and my answer too would have evolved over time. Um, and as a young scholar, you know, I was always very critical of of the many flaws um, in the legal system of of how we as, as legal scholars don't engage with systemic racism enough. Uh, but I am also conscious that there are many Indigenous people who do use the legal system to achieve their goals. You know, as critical as I am, for example, of the native title system, um, I recognise, you know, that, that many Indigenous people have turned to the native title system to achieve their goals, uh, however flawed that is. Mm. So, um, that's no, a really that that in- interesting point too. So there are there are two sides to the coin, in a sense. Yeah, and I think the best that we can do is, is to start the conversation. Uh, and that's what this book has done. I'm so proud of it. I'm so proud of, of the different approaches that, that each contributor brings. And I'm hoping that it will spark debates within the profession, the judiciary, uh, and also in law schools. Yeah, and I think it already is. And I think that it's... it's um such an interesting thing to think about reframing the very way that we're discussing these issues. Um, And I suppose one of those issues um, that's really integral to this discussion, it's very hard to ignore, and it's a point that Mary makes in her reimagined bug me judgment, is that there are very few Indigenous judicial officers on the bench in Australia. Um, And so we have a lot of non-Indigenous people considering issues that are integral to the lives of Indigenous people um, Nicole and Mary, what's the resulting impact on the treatment of so-called Indigenous issues and legal judgments that are constrained by precedent and a potentially one-dimensional notion of Indigenous people in the law? Um, once again, it's a, a really good question. Sorry, Mary, I just jumped in there. Go for um, it, love. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's such a complicated um, but good question, but at the end of the day, the year is 2022. 
It is not acceptable in this day and age that there is so little diversity in our judiciary, a judiciary that is supposed to represent all of us. Um, and it's, it's imperative that, uh, that more Indigenous people are, are elevated to the bench. And I would have thought that in the year 2022 that, um, yeah, we wouldn't even be having a, a conversation about the merits of more Indigenous people. Uh, being elevated to the judiciary, it would just be happening. Mm. It raises concerns about um, perceptions of bias within the system as well. The fact that their courts are perceived as not really having an impact on the status quo to many people um, and, in fact, re replicating it. And if they can't even manage to let First Peoples in then one has to wonder what's really going on. Um, and it goes back to what you were asking before, really, I think, um, around whether the courts can really deliver meaningful justice. Um, it, it, you know, is there really a willingness to achieve that or is it... You know, one, one of the, the, the questions I often have from my students when um, I'm, I'm teaching Indigenous studies at the moment, but we're not previously taught criminal law and criminal justice, advanced criminal law courses at law schools. Um, the students often, when they start to, when the reality of the mechanisms of the criminal justice system are revealed to them, and the whole complex interaction starts to become a lot, they become alive to it. There's this appalling sense of, oh my God, this is terrible. How can we fix it? And I just have, I can't resist asking them, well, had it occurred to you that it's actually working extremely well? And I think we really do. I mean, that's, that's really what, you know, as Nicole was saying before, it's not just about criminal law. It's in so many spaces that these judgments stand as a provocation and a truth-telling to this particular moment in time in a way that legal practitioners are, are, not, are simply not being prepared to make these strong statements and... and you know, challenge the institutions in which they work, from which they derive their income, from which they derive their status, from which they presumably thrive. Um, and yet they're not letting First Peoples in and also First Peoples tend to suffer. And, you know, while it's absolutely correct that I, I have no problem at all with First Peoples um, engaging with the, you know, whatever systems that is, whether it's to, you know, make a negligence claim or whether it's to claim native title... That doesn't. They're doing that because it's the best that, that's available. We're, we're pragmatic. We have to deal with what's in country. We've always been like that since settlers first started coming here and invading our spaces. So, um, but we really need to deal with this um, this fundamental issue about whether or not we're really prepared to change and what's really at stake. The status quo isn't serving everybody. So, and really, is there that? Is it a, is it a question of zero sum gains? It isn't actually. In fact, there's a lot for everybody to gain from actually having substantive equality. And I think in the meantime, the challenge that we can only put out to legal officers and to lawyers is to have the bravery to speak truth in their judgments, to actually testify to what the case is and to testify to the constraints, the legal constraints within which they're operating, which inhibit them from delivering the justice that this volume calls for. 
Mary Nicole, I think that's a really strong point to end our interview on. We're going to have to have you back again on the show in the future because we have so many more issues to cover and it's been such a fascinating um, discussion with you. It's Indigenous Legal Judgments. It's available. Is it available for purchase, Mary and Nicole? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, so the publisher is it, is. it was published last year and, um, yes, it's available, um, yeah, in multiple versions. Excellent. Yeah, and there's lots of versions online, I noticed just before I came, for sale in hard copy, but also lots of libraries are purchasing copies of it now to be available. So maybe lobby your local library. Well, Nicole and Mary, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for putting up with what we'll deem to be very mild technical difficulties. Um, and you've been listening to Done By Law. It's on 3CR 855am, 3cr.org.au and 3CR Digital. Um, thank you so much, Nicole and Mary, for speaking about Indigenous legal judgments tonight. And stay tuned for Voices of West Papua coming up next. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.